All right. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Dr. Valerie Simpson with Reset Forever Ministries podcast, and I will be coming to you alone. I had a guest, and somehow I lost that recording, but uh, nonetheless, I'm going to go ahead and record this lesson, and hopefully it will be a blessing to you. This week, we're going to go right into the lesson, and this week, we're going to be in lesson number nine for Word of Flame publication. We're in lesson number nine, and the lesson is for November 1st, 2020. The topic of the lesson is stirred by God. Stirred by God, found in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And this is the first time we're touching on the book of Ezra in this podcast. So I did do a little bit of background study and hopefully it will help you to understand where the people of God were, how God is working and the outcome of this endeavor. So the topic again is stirred by God. Now, just a little bit of background on the book of Ezra. There are theologians and scholars that believe Ezra, Nehemiah, those two books were one. I did some studying in the 36th chapter, the very end of 2 Chronicles, which is the preceding book from Ezra. And there are words there for Batham, and that would be uh, with what's in verse number one, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So there is some overlapping and there is some unification in those. You will find in all three of these books also that Daniel becomes prominent. So does Mordecai, uh, which is Esther's uncle. And of course, Esther, they all rose up in that era. So they are contemporaries. There are some differences in the book of uh, Chronicles. You're going to find a more civic account, kind of the demographics and uh, the statistics and the time and names, etc. You'll get governmental background out of the book of Chronicles. That's why they call it Chronicles. It is the book of records of the church. And then in the book of Ezra, where we're at today, we're finding that the people of God are being released to go back to their land. And we'll talk about that a little bit in the book of Nehemiah, which follows Ezra, is where we see the work actually being carried out. And the work that I'm speaking of is the rebuilding of the temple. All right, so let's just go back. <clears throat> Pardon me. So uh, let's just go back and look at this. So in the book of Chronicles, what happens actually is Cyrus, the king, is now in charge. And this was following the death of Belshazzar. Belshazzar's life ended as king when of Babylon when he opted to not only have a banquet with the concubines and his uh, lords and uh, wives and so forth, but he also chose to send for the vessels that were exclusively to be used in the temple 
for service and ministry unto God. When he did that, God struck him down within the same hour. And the obstacle or the spectacle, I should say, was that God allowed it to be written on the wall right there at the banquet. Uh, Not by a person that went over to the wall and started writing, but just the fingers of a man's hand went over and wrote on the wall that you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom's going to be taken away from you and it's going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. So the Medes, uh, the uh, head over the Medes was King Darius, a heathen king, and the head over the Persians was Cyrus. So Cyrus steps up. And I want to add one thing that Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar that brought them down into Babylon. The book of Ezra is written right about 538 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar dies right around 539 B.C. So this is happening right after the death of Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson gets in there as I just explained. Belshazzar and he's taken down. And when that happens, and when his life ends, this king, another heathen king, again, by the name of Cyrus, is placed in the kingship over the people. So that's where the lesson starts off at. In verse number one, Cyrus is the king, and it says this. Now in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. You will find those words verbatim if you back up just one page to the 36th chapter of the book of Second Chronicles. So they collaborate. However, uh, it's in the book of Jeremiah. So it was prophesied there, Jeremiah 29 and 10. If you're taking notes, you'll find also confirmation of the same. I do want to say that uh, the fall through this whole thing, uh, the state of mind the people were in was they had fallen. And because of their fall, they were carried into Babylon. And because they were carried into Babylon and had been in exile, They were being handed from king to king, and they were in Babylonian territory. They were not even in their own homes or their homeland. So they were pretty uh, distraught, and they were hopeless by this time that everything that had been promised to them or everything that they had to look forward to had now been forfeited. But I want you to remember this, that in spite of our deeds, in many cases, God is kind enough to overlook some of the things that you have done and allow you to still enjoy the pleasures that he has for you in this world. Not everyone gets them. We know that because the children of Israel were made a promise that they would see the promised land. And because of their unbelief, God allowed the one generation to just completely die off, walk around in the wilderness 
until that generation died off. And he wasn't very happy about them because he had showed them many works and he had manifested himself to them in many ways. He had made many provisions to them, but they still were able, they were capable of coming up with unbelief and it provoked God to the point where God said, they will not see my rest. They will not enter into my rest. And when he refers to their death, he says their carcasses fell in the wilderness. So God was not pleased at all. But in this situation, they're hopeless, they're distraught. And God now looks to his promise. Above all these things, God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was that your seed would be like, they would be numbered like the grains of sand on the seashore. And he also told them back in the book of Exodus, I'm going to raise up uh, from among your brethren one that is likened unto you, him shall you hear. And he was prophesying about the coming of Jesus. He had also told them that he was going to give them a land that flowed with milk and honey that had to come to pass. And he had also let them know that they were a nation that was called out and they were a nation that God was going to bless. So God had his word out there, promises out there, and knowing full well what they were going to do, God's promise is still good. He had not changed his mind. So this is a, a message of redemption because they were to have been destroyed. They could have perished in their captivity down in Babylon. But God is redeeming them and not just out of Babylon, but he's redeeming them to go back to their land. He's giving them the opportunity to rebuild the temple. If you can think back for a moment, there was a time when they were carried away into Babylon and they looked up and found themselves by the river Shabbat and said, there we sat. We remember Jerusalem. And they said, when we remember Jerusalem, we just couldn't play our harps and our instruments and worship and sing the songs of Zion anymore. As a matter of fact, we just hung our harps on the willow tree and we wept. <clears throat> and we just wept. But, you know, God came back to them and, and, and says to them, if I forget you, Jerusalem, let my tongue just cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I forget you, if I forget you, oh, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget you. Reassurance that <clears throat> before I allow my words fall to the ground or before I neglect and abandon you, I myself will be maimed and disabled and in front. And of course, that cannot happen. So there is redemption, and this gospel of redemption is seen in this particular story. He speaks in and out of time, I like to say. And uh, that in and out of time, he's speaking to them regarding their current situation. I'm going to deliver you from this current situation. It's not going to always be this way. I already have a plan and a way of escape. You're going to get out of this. It's going to be over. I'm going to bless you. But there was a message, a gospel message 
that was coming down the line that because I'm preserving you that my my promise goes on it will continue to live itself out and play itself out until the fullness of time has come and uh, the instruction I'm going to make sure that you are reproved these things have to happen what you're going through is a time of reproof you're going through a time of instruction and correction but it's so that you can be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So anything I allow you to go through is to instruct you and correct you and to and to reprove you and to make sure that you are furnished, equipped, and capable for the work that lies ahead. So now we're ready to focus on um, what God is doing. We're going to go to verse number one. Verse number one says, Now in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the words of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred the heart of King Cyrus. Now, at the time of the uh, Babylonian, the fall of the Babylonian captivity, because Belshazzar was weak, the Babylonians fell to the Medes and Persians, and now the Medes and Persians are the strongest nation on the earth. All power is given unto them. And this is what Cyrus had said. And here it is in verse number two. It says, Thus said King Cyrus, King of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He's a heathen. He is not even one of the children of Israel. He is not even one that the law was given to. He is not one that saw all the miracles of God as they wandered through the wilderness and as they made their way into uh, their journey to the promised land. He didn't see all those things. He was a heathen. But look at what he said. God stirred my heart. He's given me all of these things and he has put it in my heart and charged me to build the house of Jerusalem. God can talk to anybody. I heard, uh, as a matter of fact, we pre-recorded this and uh, somehow I managed to mess that up and not save it. But uh, God can use anyone and uh, we did see some good come out of uh, this administration which was uh, Jerusalem returning or the Jews returning their capital to Jerusalem not to say that God had to use this particular administration and I'm speaking of the United States and this lesson is coming to us at a very timely uh, juncture when we are about to vote in a very historic election probably the most historic in my 60 plus years. This election is historic, but we're seeing where God is raising up another leader and the heart of this leader is being led by God. But my point was that whether it didn't have to be that leader that brought Israel back to Jerusalem as their headquarters, no more than it has to be anything less than Balaam's ass that stopped him from being murdered. God can use anything or whatever he chooses to use. 
because he is God. And so, but I like that Cyrus says that God has given me to build the house of Jerusalem. He had it fixed in his heart that there was a decree that was given to him by God. A charge had been laid upon him to build it. So by all means, whatever he could do as the king, he was going to see to it that it was done. The, uh, the house of Jerusalem, which is at Judah, verse number three, who, in there, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. So, number one, Cyrus's heart had been stirred by God. So the people are being let out of captivity and sent back to build their homes in Jerusalem and to build the temple that is in Jerusalem. That glory goes to God and God alone. And now he's speaking to the people now who is there among you whose heart God has stirred to go and build. So he's giving them the liberty to go and to build the house of God. That was verse number three. Verse number four said, And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the man of his place help him with silver, gold, and with goods, and with beasts, beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So, so if you don't have skill, if you don't have the strength to do it, if you're aged, if you're infirm, uh, if you're debilitated, if you don't think that you could endure the responsibility then you can still participate in the building of the temple by giving of your wealth, your good things, your pleasures, um, your your treasures, I should say. Give that along with the free will offering so that they can be equipped and they can have everything that they need to build the temple. And it's a good point for us to always remember that God's will is going to be done because God has a purpose and there is a promise that has to be met. That temple that was built there was built for the worship and the fellowship. They used to have tents and tabernacles because God wanted the tabernacle with them. But then when they had that beautiful edifice they could come to every year for those feasts that had been instituted. That was something that they wanted to have back and so that they can get back to life as they had once known it. And that had to be done. So God blessed them to have a king, a heathen king, determined to see that happen because God had charged him that that temple be rebuilt. All right, verse number five says, then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and of Benjamin, which were one, the chief of the fathers. And he says, and the priests and the Levites. So uh, Israel, I'm sorry, Ezra was a priest, but he's also a prophet. And he was also skillful. So he was useful in every possible way. 
That's how much his heart was stirred. He was going to be a priest. He was going to be a prophet. And he was going to be a laborer. He was going to roll up his sleeves and do everything because his heart was full of passion and gratitude. Now, you know, he's referred to as the ready scribe. Ezra is referred to as the ready scribe. While they were down in captivity, a lot of things that they were doing, building houses and marrying, raising their families and crops, and they had commerce and businesses and buildings and all of those things. But Ezra was exceptional. He was a priest. And he was always in that word. He was searching the scriptures. He was in touch with God. And he was studious to be sure that he understood what the Bible was or what the scriptures were saying about the people of God. So this was a man that was going to be the ready scribe. The other people, many of them were not. They were not even able to read So when he came and he brought that precious word to them, they stood and they listened to it because their hearts had longed for it. Sometimes you can miss the word of God so much that when it is preached or taught or it is expounded upon or offered to you in any capacity, your heart yearns and longs for it. We're going to find out later on in the book of Ezra that They found one of the books of the law that had been lost as they were renovating the temple. And Ezra gets the book of the law out and he reads it. And it was so precious to them in those days that they stood up at the reading of the word. And the Bible says he read it over the space of a quarter of the day, which would have been six hours. Can you imagine standing for six hours listening to the word of God well this is what they did but the word was precious in those days and the ready scribe he had it in his heart and he was ready to give it verse number six and all they that were about um, them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver and gold and goods and beasts and precious things beside all that was willingly offered. So they began to just load up and they began to collect everything they were going to need to build and to restructure and to garnish the house of God. They were on a mission mission, and they were equipped. So now they're going to build And uh, the Bible says that in verse number seven, it says, also Cyrus brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar brought out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of their God. Take note, the vessels that they took really uh, should not have been touched because those vessels were used they would take the blood of the sacrifice and pour so much of it into basins. And then the other part they would take and they would sprinkle on the altar. And that blood sprinkled on the altar represented the innocence of the animal that had been slain for the guilt of the people. 
So you see clearly the gospel message there. The blood of Jesus, the innocent lamb of God, had to shed his blood for the guilt of the people. And that's what that sprinkling of the blood on the altar meant when the priest, who was Ezra, went to offer that to God. And the rest of it was in basins, etc. So in verse number eight, even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithradath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazar, and he was the prince of Judah who led them back. He was the leader of the group, so they he went and got these vessels that cost Belshazzar, who was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, who had this huge banquet, and he lost his life right there. And he got those vessels, Cyrus, this man who's heart God obviously had. The king's heart was in his hand. And he went in and got those vessels that did not belong there at that temple and he gave them back to them so they could carry them to the house of their God. And then he numbers them. This is the number of them. 30 chargers of gold, a thousand chargers of silver, uh, nine and 20 knives, 30 basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, 410, and vessels of thousands. Thousand. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Belshazzar bring with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So this lesson is a very, very good start to the book of Ezra. Now they're out of captivity. God has destroyed the wicked. And I'll tell you, as wicked as Nebuchadnezzar was when Daniel got them, Nebuchadnezzar repented in his death. He repented and he said, the God of heaven rules. But his grandson, Belshazzar, stepped in after him. And he was more concerned with the lavishness or the lavish lifestyle of a king. And his biggest mistake was that he took those vessels that were sanctified to God for the use in the temple and he used them for his pleasure. And I'm going to say to you and I that we are vessels that are set aside for God's use. And they are not to be desecrated. They are not to be used, neither by man, and neither should we give them over for disuse or misuse, because that infuriated God to the point where he brought a spectacle there in the banquet in the palace. And then within the same hour, Belshazzar had lost his life. Well, this lesson was stirred by God. So my prayer is that you see where the heart of the king was stirred first. Then he, being the king, spoke and encouraged and stirred the hearts of the people. 
And then the people that weren't able to go were stirred to give and to support this good work and this good ground and that their king, but that their kingdom or that their land and their temple was soon to rebuild. So they swiftly went from a, a place of hopelessness and despair and giving up on the promises that God had them. And now they're realizing that, yes, another chance has been given unto me. This is the gospel message. God wants to redeem his people. God wants to restore his people. He doesn't want to always leave you in a situation of despair. I think it's the book of Psalms, chapter 30. It says, he won't always be wrong. He said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You, yes, you're in a dark situation, but just know God has made a way of escape and that there is going to be joy again. You will laugh again. You will rejoice again. You will have your strength again. You will enjoy life again. The things that have been taken from you, I'm going to give back to you and I'm going to give them back to you in a better measure. And you're going to appreciate me more. You'll be better equipped and your hearts will be more humble to do the things that I have told you to do. Don't worry about the neglect because the neglect was only for a period of time. I understand that you have neglected me, but I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to redeem you. All right, well, for the third time going over this lesson today, that is my lesson. So I pray that you've all been blessed. I pray that something has been said that you can give to someone else and that you can encourage someone so that we can build and do the work of the kingdom of God. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you. Your word is rich. Your promises are sure. All the promises of God are nay and incomplete. So we thank you for this word. We thank you for this opportunity and the revelation that you have given. We know that the Lamb of God shed his blood and his innocent blood is shed upon the altar in heaven for his innocence, but also for the forgiveness of sin. And is there in remembrance that that once and for all sacrifice has been for what we have done. Now bless Lord our hearers. I pray that this word will settle in their hearts. I pray Lord God that it will be indelibly impressed in their minds and that they will take the things that they have heard and give it to others who will be able to teach others also. We ask these and all other blessings in Jesus name. All right, well God bless you and we ask you to join us again next week on Reset Forever Ministry podcast. Have blessed.